Okay. So, just a quick review or overview from, from last week. Uh, part of this class is for us to understand the role of biblical theology as it relates to reading the Bible. Biblical theology is the making connections throughout the Bible, and there's all sorts of different names for it, but it is the, the study of how the Bible works internally, right? So we talked about how the Bible is to, to form us, right, when we read it. We have to think the way the Bible thinks. We should speak the way the Bible speaks. We should live the way the Bible <clears throat> calls us to live. Uh, and, and not only that, but the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself, right? It's called the analogy of faith. Um, and all of, all of these things I, I complement and, and work with the, the discipline of biblical theology, which is understanding how the Bible works together. Um, biblical theology is one of the main disciplines when, when you study theology, and we just did a systematics theology class in the fall. And systematic theology, if you're to, if you're to put together a pizza, systematic theology is looking at all the ingredients, right? It's, it's saying, okay, here's the flour, here's the sauce, here's the cheese, here are the toppings, these are the things, and we look at each one on its own, right? Biblical theology is you make a pizza, you put it in the oven, and then you start to smell it, right? And what is it that you're smelling? All of it, right? You don't smell just the cheese or just the sauce or just the crust. It's, it's all of it together you begin to smell. And as you begin to bring this in, it's like, oh my goodness, this, it all goes so well together, right? And then as you continue to read in this way, you begin to taste it, and it begins to fill you up, and so on. So these, these are some of the differences with biblical theology and systematic theology, both absolutely necessary. If you don't have the right ingredients, you can't make a good pizza. But biblical theology is putting those things together and seeing how they complement one another. Uh, last week, we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus goes up onto the mount and is transfigured. And there was a couple uh, key phrases or words that we pulled out of that. One being the eighth day, right? It was on the eighth day that he went up. Uh, we looked, so we looked at a biblical theology of the eighth day and how that phrase is actually packed full of meaning all throughout the Old Testament, right? It, it refers to cleansings. It refers to circumcision. It refers to um, ordination of priesthoods. It refers to uh, newness of life and resurrection. It refers to Lord's Day worship. It refers to covenant renewal. It has all of these things, <clears throat> excuse me, that the eighth day signifies. So when <clears throat> Luke tells us that Jesus went up onto the mountain eight days later, the eighth day, he is using this incredibly symbolic day, which is really not a day at all, right? It's just the next first day. But we see it as not just the end of the week, it's, it's the, the movement into the new creation, really. So when we look at that with the transfiguration, how Jesus was actually transfigured, he put on glory, he gave us a picture of what the new creation looks like on the eighth day. Then we looked at a biblical theology of mountains and what that means and how throughout the Bible we go on to mountains to hear from God, right? You go on to mountains to build temples, to dwell with God. God meets his people on mountains. God gives instructions on mountains. God gives blueprints on mountains. Mountains are incredibly important all throughout the Bible. So when we read a story like the Transfiguration, that Jesus goes up onto a mountain, we should begin to think, 
what does it mean that he went up onto a mountain? All right? And then we looked at the biblical theology of the Exodus. Remember, in, <clears throat> I don't remember which verse it was, but he speaks with Moses and Elijah, and they speak of his departure, which is about to take place in Jerusalem. The Transfiguration is chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. Um, <clears throat> and he speaks of this departure, and that word, departure, your Bibles will have the little footnote. I think if it's an ESV, it will. I, I, I think other ones do as well. But if you're to do a word study on departure, it's the Greek word that you pronounce exodus, right? It's, it's, there's no frills with it. There's no translation. It's just the word exodus in Greek. And so then we say, wow, why is he talking that about him about to accomplish an exodus? And he's talking to Moses, who is like the champion of the exodus story, right? So this means something. that He goes up onto a mountain, and now there's this exodus theme that is about to play out in Jerusalem. So when we read the rest of Luke's gospel, we should be thinking in terms of the exodus. We should be thinking in terms of a new creation. We should be thinking in terms of God doing something new or giving us instructions or meeting us in a unique way on a mountain. All right, so that's kind of an overview that we looked at last week. Uh, are there any questions on any of that? Any clarity I can bring? Sammy. Yeah. Don't want to be a crazy guy on YouTube. It's like the goal of Bible study. Don't be the crazy guy on YouTube. That's actually what this class is all about, is how to be faithful and how to do it well. But I'll say this. Um, and this will sound somewhat controversial, right? The Bible is absolutely our authority. And we must submit to it. And at the very center of the scripture is Christ. It is his word to us, right? When we, when we look at the Bible, what is this? It is so many things being infused from history to the sovereignty of God to the living Christ and the Holy Spirit that make the words dance and they're dynamic. Right? It's living and active. We talked about this last week as well. It's not just a dead text that there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. So within modernity and since the scientific method where everything has to be right or wrong, we talked about this a little bit last week as well, how the Bible thinks associationally, not scientifically. If we think scientifically, we, it's either proven right or it's proven wrong. Right? And this is how we are trained to think in the West, particularly since the Enlightenment. But I would say this, if you're reading the Bible and you're trying to make connections and you see Christ, you may discover later on that that connection is actually probably not the best connection to make. But if you see Christ in the scriptures, that is, that's the goal, right? It is the goal of the scriptures is to reveal Christ. Now, we want to do that responsibly and we want to do that rightly, fully under the authority of, of God's word. But we should view Bible interpretation less like a, a tightrope, right? They have to walk very carefully lest you slip and fall off into error or heresy. But rather, we should look at it like a piece of property that's massive um, with a, a big boundary that we, and we can name that boundary as all sorts of things, which we'll get into. But it's, it's more of something to explore, 
It's like, man, I've never thought about this. So you can walk down this part of the path or say, maybe I can make a path here. There's not one already. And you begin to do that. And we do that within the realm of scripture, under the authority of scripture, within the bounds of scripture and look for Jesus, <laughs> right? That's, that's the best way to read the Bible. That is, that's the living and active nature of it. When we have this tightrope sort of view that one slip and I'm, I'm wrong or sinful or, or whatever it might be, um, we begin to be very limited and, and very, um, yeah, l- limited in our understanding, really, in, in how we read the Bible. And we have to see it as dynamic, too, with it, it's relational. It is how God communicates to us, and we are actually to communicate back to God through the Scriptures, by, by praying the Scriptures and so on. So when we think about relationships with our kids or with our spouses or with our friends, it's very much like that property analogy, not like a tight tight rope, right? We don't want that sort of relationship. So there's that, but ultimately we will, um, we'll get into how to do it responsibly and biblically. Really, that's the goal, to do it biblically. Other questions? Okay, so I, I didn't get to the last part of, of our notes last week. So I want to include that, and I've included that in your notes this week, so you don't have to have the ones from last week. But overall, we're going to, we're going, I'm going to introduce a, a couple frameworks, a couple ways to, to view the Bible, and, uh, and a way to interpret the Bible that will, for one, give us biblical guidelines on how to move through a text and how to search it responsibly without becoming the guy on YouTube. Um, and, and, and then another paradigm to understand how the Old Testament works with our timeline, which we'll put up there in just a minute. But I want to come back to the Bible is cyclical, right? The Bible works in cycles, right? The Bible does not work necessarily. I understand there's chronology, and we can lay out the, the chronology um, uh, as a timeline, you know, like, like so, um, in a linear fashion. But the Bible, the way the Bible thinks is not from one point of history to the next, okay? The Bible thinks in in cycles, more like this, okay? And then if if you want to insert a timeline into it, the timeline would then move something like this, okay? With the climax, let's say, being the cross and the resurrection and so on. So when we read stories in the Bible, creation is a perfect example, right? Within the first six chapters, six, we'll say the first 11 chapters, just we'll include Babylon there, um, you, have the, you have the same story happening at least twice. And really, there's other ones inside as well with Cain and Abel. But you have the, water, the, the earth is covered with water, right? That happens with the flood and at creation. You have God's spirit doing a work. God speaks, the water goes aside and comes out. What? But a new earth, right? So you have this new earth in both the flood and with Genesis. And then what do you have? You have um, a, a new Adam in Noah, right? You have Adam and then the new Adam. And then you have a sin with Adam's children, Cain and Abel, and you have a sin with Noah's child, Ham. And then the result of Adam's sin, or Cain's sin, Adam's sin and then Cain's sin, leads to uh, the whole world hardening their hearts to God, which is what leads to the flood. And then when you come on Noah's side, you have the flood, the new earth, the new Adam, 
the, the sin, the sin of the child, and what does that lead to but Babel, which is God disperses everybody, right? It's the same story. There's just different characters. It, it follows the same cycle, right? It, it moves, and we hear, oh, that sounds, Genesis 1 sounds like Genesis 6 through 9. So it's, it's cyclical in this way. Can you think of other? What might this one be? Can you think of any? Think about creation. What might the next one be? Or, or another one. Is there another creation story? Okay, yeah, yeah. You have a king, you have a son who was actually really great, and then he sins, and then what happens after he sins? You have a split, a babble, um, depravity, and so on. Yeah, it, and, and those cycles don't all have to have every single element, but it's, it's a pattern, right? They're patterns, and that's what reading the Bible in a biblical, theological sort of way, you look for are these patterns. Yeah, Absolutely. So it's cyclical. Some other things, um, when we read the Bible, we want to look for cycles. We want to look for uh, characters that remind us of someone else in the Bible, right? So perhaps one of the best examples would be Moses and Joshua. We saw it with Adam and Noah. Moses and Joshua, how are they similar? How's Moses and Joshua similar? Both leaders. God ordained leaders, absolutely. Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into Canaan, right? There's this movement that's happening there. Moses leads uh, the Israelites miraculously across the Red Sea. Joshua leads the Israelites miraculously across the Jordan, right? You have water parting and walking across. That's just, it's like, man, that, that should sound familiar, right, when we come to... Um, to Joshua, we say, man, I've read that before. And then if we think and we just pause, we say, wait a second, I've seen this many times. That same sort of thing happened with the flood. There's water, they parted, there's earth. Same thing happened with creation. There's a pulling apart and, and earth. You know, these, these sort of themes should, should start to pop up. You have uh, Moses that sends out spies to Canaan. Joshua sends out spies to Jericho. Moses allocates the land to the east of the Jordan. Joshua allocates land to the west of the Jordan. Moses, Moses, right before he dies, gives this prolonged speech, his final word and testament. Joshua, before he dies, gives a similar prolonged last word and testament sort of speech. So you have Moses and Joshua that seem to play off of each other. So we should pick those patterns up. Elijah and Elisha. Sometimes you can't tell which one's which. Not only do their names sound alike, but their ministries are so similar. And then Elisha actually expands and does more than Elijah did. But both predicted droughts. Both were miraculously fed multiple times. Both raised dead people. Both took care of widows. Both had miraculous death events, which is really interesting. If you haven't read the story about Elisha's death, it's it's kind of funny, but Elijah, we know that one. He crosses another water crossing, right? Another water crossing, splits the sea, walks through with Elisha in hand, and they're talking, and then a chariot of fire comes and separates them, and then Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. And he's gone. And is that right, Joe? All right. <laughs> 
Most people want to say that he was taken up in a chariot of fire, but that's not true, is it? He was taken up in the whirlwind. Then we talk about the chariot of fire and how that comes up in Ezekiel and in Elijah's life before. It's all over. But, uh, and then Elisha, what does he do? He almost works backwards. He then crosses the sea. He then goes to uh, the young prophets. He continues or starts a school, continues the school that Elijah started in teaching this. This is also a new creation part of the, uh, the biblical narrative because do you remember Elijah? He's about to give up and the Lord says, hey, calm down. I still have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee. That 7,000 becomes the remnant to which the kingdom is brought back. The kingdom was essentially dead with Ahab and Elijah thought it was over. He's like, a whole redemptive plan is over. And God says, no, 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 I still have a few, <laughs> right? And then you have this water crossing. You have, you have a name. You got all sorts of stuff that's happening there, an anointing. And then you have almost this new creation, this new line, if you would, that comes from Elijah and Elisha, which carries us through with the faithful prophets and, and the southern kingdom and so on. Elisha's death story, as he fell sick, and it's a fairly peaceful death, and then all of a sudden, it says uh, that they, they buried him, and then it like skips forward. And I, don't know, I don't even know how many years, uh, but there was a guy who was burying his friend, and then this gang of thieves that come, and it talks about which tribes they were, but they came, and he got scared, so he took his friend and threw him into Elisha's grave, and his friend pops up, <laughs> and he's alive. There's a resurrection as soon as he hits Elisha's bones, which is really something, which then you could say another theme would be resurrections, right? What kind of resurrections do we see in the Bible? All of these things begin to play together. Jacob and David, they're two that we don't think about being similar, but in fact, their stories overlap quite a bit. Both are called younger sons. Both are chosen by God. Both are opposed by a father and then a father-in-law. Um, Jacob flees Isaac's house because of Esau. David flees Saul, Saul's house, which is his adopted father. Uh, Jacob receives a wife from a wicked man, Laban, remember? David receives a, wicked, or receives a wife from a wicked man, Nabal, right? And these stories are connected. And do you want to know how? Do you know how to spell Nabal? Does anybody remember? N A B A L, right? He is, he is miserable. His name means fool. It really does. And his wife despises him, and then he dies, and then she marries David after Nabal treated David horribly. David was about to kill everybody. And if it wasn't for his wife, he says no. But Nabal's a funny name because his story with Jacob's story is connected. Because what happens when you spell Nabal backwards? L-A-B-A-N. It's Laban, right? See, the Holy Spirit is at work in the text. He's doing stuff. And that's, that's true in, in Hebrew. That's not just in, in English. He's at work in the text. When we read the Bible, we have to remember there are two authors to the text. And this is what we're going to move into here in a few minutes, is um, wanting to understand both the human author, which is absolutely necessary, but also reading, realizing that there is a divine author. God is incredibly creative. He's incredibly um, witty and humorous and 
glorious as he writes the text. And there are things like this all throughout the Bible that he has hidden for us to search out. And it's for his glory that he's hidden it. It's for our glory that we search these things out. All right, so you want to look for these, these sort of patterns. We talked about the creation story. We talked about Exodus stories, right? Um, we did that at the end with when we see Exodus in the transfiguration at the end of last week, uh, the transfiguration. That should begin to cause us to think about Exodus stories. And I went through a few of them very quickly last week. But we have Exodus stories that start really early in the text. Uh, you have it with the Noah's Ark is an Exodus story, that Noah is removed from a wicked world and brought through the waters to a new world, right? That's an Exodus story. Uh, Abram's removal from death in Babylon to life in Canaan. You have Lot's deliverance from Sodom, right? When Lot was delivered from Sodom, that is an Exodus sort of story. Though, unfortunately, instead of going into the promised land, Lot goes into the mountains and becomes one most disgusting people in the Bible, which comes the Moabites. So when we find out in the Old Testament that the Moabites are despised, there's a reason for that, right? They have ancestral origins in their, in their line. Um, we have, uh, we, we've got an uh, Exodus story with Isaac's, uh, Isaac being delivered from, really, Egypt. or Phil The Philistines and the Egyptians used to be together, right? They used to be the same people. So the Philistines came out of out of Egypt, which is also somewhat of an Exodus story. You have Jacob's deliverance from Laban. You've got the ark, which we talked about, how it went into the, the Philistine cities and went to the different kingdoms, then comes out, and there was plagues, and there's plunder, and there's all of that, right? There's all sorts of Exodus stories in the Bible. Jesus' life is an Exodus story. Right? Matthew is very intentional about laying this out, but Mark does so, Luke does so, and John. They all do it, but Matthew is the most explicit. That Jesus wants to, or excuse me, Matthew wants us to think of Jesus reliving the Exodus story. And there's a reason for that. Right? Matthew begins, you know, the genealogy, and then it begins with, with turmoil. Right? There is no long birth narrative like there is in in Luke's gospel, there's a few words, and then it's, and King Herod is hunting down this child because of the testimony of the wise men. And what does he do? He starts killing little baby boys, which is the same thing Pharaoh did, right? And then Jesus ends up going to Egypt in order to fulfill the prophecy that out of Egypt I called my son, which is speaking of the Exodus story, but Jesus then comes out of Egypt when God calls him out of Egypt when he's a young boy to come back to Jerusalem. And then Matthew continues on with his baptism, crosses the Red Sea in the baptism. Paul connects the Red Sea in the baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. And after the baptism, he goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted as Israel went out into the wilderness. And then in Matthew chapter 5, he ends up going up onto a mountain and giving his first long sermon the Sermon on the Mount, and the same way with the Exodus story, after the wilderness, there's, there's two wilderness scenes, but after the first one, he goes up onto a mountain, receives the law, and gives the law, right? Matthew wants us to think of the Exodus story when we read about Jesus' life. And then Luke obviously comes out and says he's about to fulfill the Exodus, right? There's these Exodus themes all throughout. 
How about this? If I told you this story, there was a famine in the land, so the people of God left their home and went to Egypt to find food. While in Egypt, Pharaoh treated the people of God poorly. Therefore, God sent plagues on Pharaoh and his house. Pharaoh eventually said, take your people and go. And the people of God left Egypt with more than they had when they came in. Now, what's, what story is that? Yeah, Exodus. No, actually, it's not. It is. But that story is actually Abram and Sarai in Genesis 12 when they go down into, into Egypt. It's, the, it's, it's a mini Exodus story right there in Genesis chapter 12. It's the same story that plays over and over and over again. And if we're going to be good readers of the Bible, we want to have our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds attuned to these stories. All right, any questions on any of that? These are some of the, the cyclical nature. Questions? Let me turn the lock on this. No questions. Comments, how about that, as I try to fix this whiteboard? Okay. <clears throat> No, nothing? Okay. We will do, remember the timeline? We'll do it fast. This is very helpful for us to understand how the Old Testament particularly works. Yeah, it's coming down and so on. Right? I don't know if you have a blank page. Mandy informed me last time. I thought there was in the printout, but I guess not. The back of the front page, if you haven't written it down, you can do it there. So the way the Old Testament works in a grand scheme, just to help us understand how the Bible works and presents itself, is through this sort of timeline. Where you have, you've got creation, right? You have the fall. After the fall, what's the next main event? The flood. Now, obviously, we're skipping over. Whoops, I was doing this before. We're skipping over lots of big stories in the Bible, but this just helps us understand how the Bible unfolds. After the flood, you have the Tower of Babel. And a cool thing about Babel, have you guys seen the, um, I'll bring it, I'll, I'll have it next week to put on the screen, the graphic of all the cross-references in the Bible? It's like the most beautiful thing, right? It is, I think it's over 90,000 of them, and that's only part of them, it's not all of them, but it's just these lines, it's like this big rainbow, right? It is really incredible. So if we were to do that here, do you know where we could go with Babel? Okay, think about um, how at Babel all the languages were separated. When do all languages come back together? Pentecost. Yeah, Pentecost. Pentecost is the, the anti-Babel. It's, it's, the, it's the renewal of what went wrong here. The Holy Spirit comes, and now he's uniting as opposed to separating. It's kind of cool. All right, so after Babel, then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, And one of the sons in particular has a prominent role in Genesis, and that's Joseph, right? He gets sold into slavery, and then he's raised to power. And then there comes the famine in the land. He brings his, well, he's in slavery, raised to power. Then comes the famine, and the 12 brothers end up coming into Egypt with him, right? 
And then Egypt, they begin to, to grow, and they have lots of kids and families. They expand and so on. So they're there, and then, and then what happens? Well, they're in Egypt, so let's put a little, uh, little pyramid for Egypt. They're in Egypt, and then they get enslaved again, right? Pharaoh doesn't like what's happening, so gets enslaved. And then Moses comes, right? And we have the Exodus story, so we'll have water parting for the Exodus story. After Exodus, they go to Sinai. They receive the law, right, on a mountain. The law, those are the two tablets in case you're wondering. You have the law on the mountain. Then <clears throat> what's the main key figure after Moses and the giving of the law? David. Well, you, have the, you, have, you have Joshua and you have the judges, right? And they're, they're kind of these transitional uh, characters. So we'll put J and J for Joshua and judges here. And then you have David. We'll give him a crown. Then you have Solomon. He makes lots of money. And then Solomon has two kids, or one kid. His name was Rehoboam. But there's also another influential young man named Jeroboam. And when Solomon dies, who's going to be king? And this is where the conflict begins, right? So there's a conflict. Jeroboam ends up getting a lot of influence, and he takes the ten tribes with him to the north, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. And then here you have Jeroboam going to the south in Judah. And then we have Assyrian exile. That's in 720 here. Siri, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Assyria comes into 720, takes Israel captive. And then what comes next? But the Babylonians, right? Give them the B. And they kill the Assyrians, and then they just take over. And they take over in 626. And then the Babylonians not only take over the north, but they come down here to the south, and they take over Judah. And 6, no, 5, I don't remember. I wrote the dates up here. 598. And 598. And then Persia comes. And they wipe out the Babylonians here, and then they come down here and wipe out the Babylonians here. And that's when Cyrus comes, Ezra, Nehemiah, the return to the land, and so on. Okay? This is a basic um, overview or timeline of the Bible. <clears throat> but there's a way for us, and we, we'll unpack this more in weeks to come, so we're not going to do a ton of time on it now. But there's a way for us to understand this in another uh, helpful dimension, right? Another helpful paradigm. And that's to see that the Bible is written not, or the Old Testament particularly, is written not in just 39 random books, all right? They're, they're units that work together. Uh, in fact, the minor prophets that we have, there's 12 of them. In the Hebrew Bibles, that's just one book called the 12, right? They're not all these individual books like we have in our English Bible. It's one book called the 12. Uh, Chronicles. Certainly, that's one book, not two. Kings, one book, not two. Samuel, one book, not two, and, and so on. 
right? So the, the, the Bible works historically and theologically in, in units. And the Old Testament can be broken up into three big sections. And then the Bible as a whole could be viewed as four sections or four books, four overall books. Uh, and this is, this is a, a really fascinating way to do it, where you have Genesis, and remember, I, I mentioned this last time, from here to here, uh, to here, that's all Genesis, right? From, excuse me, from here to here, that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Joshua judges. Uh, Ruth would fit in here as well. And then we get right into Saul, David, Solomon, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and so on. And then from 1 Kings 11, which is when uh, Solomon dies, we move into uh, the prophets, right? So <clears throat> when we think about the first five books of the Bible, there's actually, Joshua works really well with it. It continues the story. Judges is where we have the biggest transition. So we could put a big line between Joshua and Judges and see this as the first main book, okay? The second main book would come right here, right? This is all the kingly stuff that's going on, okay? And then the third main book would be this, the prophets, okay? Now, this is the book of the priests, right? This is a priestly book. This talks about the priesthood. This talks about uh, the giving of the law and Aaron and Moses and the tabernacle, which I didn't put in there. You got tabernacle and temple as well. Um, the tabernacle and, and how, how the, the, the sacrificial system is to work, right? The Mosaic covenant is established here, right? So we could say these are the priests. I'll just put a P for now. Or, which I, on your handout, you have one that says ox, lion, eagle, man, right? These are the four faces of the cherubim. They come up in Revelation 4. They come out in Ezekiel chapter 1, and then they're alluded to in other places. Uh, these four faces of the cherubim, a uh, representation of God's presence and power and authority and all sorts of other things, um, have been from the early church fathers trying to be applied to the Bible. What does this mean? There's, there's symbolism here. And all throughout church history, uh, the church has seen this as a very powerful symbolic movement. So these four faces actually would correspond to these four books if we include the New Testament as well, right? So we're gonna call the, the priestly books, Genesis through Joshua, the book of the ox, okay? The kingly books, which one do you think that would be? Which animal? Lion, right? Lion of the tribe of Judah. And then the prophetic books would be the eagle. Oops. And then the New Testament would be the man. All right. So if we see this as Genesis through Joshua... This will be 1 Kings, um, or excuse me, it would be Judges through 1 Kings 11. And this is 1 Kings 12 through Malachi. 
All right. So you all have that handout in your notes. I want to walk through this real quick, and then we can come back to this. But this is, again, a helpful way to see how the Bible unfolds. And uh, this is just a tiny little sample of what could be said on all of this, right? There, there's, it gets into Scripture in so many different ways. But here I just have the Old Testament. So I want to look at the, the priest or the ox, which is that first category, and I want to kind of walk through that. Um, the time periods, actually we'll just go across. The time periods, which I put up there already, you see that. Then there's major figures of each one. So you have Moses as the major figure, right, of the priestly books. He's the one that the law has been given to. David is the main figure of the kingly books, as he is the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, the king that will sit on an everlasting throne. And then the major figures of the old, or of the eagle, would be the prophets. And the supreme prophet, uh, the, uh, the one who inaugurates, is really Elijah, right? He is seen as the main figure the, uh, the father, if you would, of the prophets. So even when we think about it this way, we should start to think, huh, Moses and Elijah, the two, two of the three main figures were on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that, that, might, that might help us think as well. The, lo- the locus focus, right, the, the main area that we're, the locale that we're focused on in the priestly books is the tabernacle, right? And in each iteration, it grows. So it goes from the tabernacle to the temple and the kingdom. The temple also is a massive glorified version of the tabernacle. And then by the time we get to the prophets, it goes from the kingdom to the world, right? Prophets are those who, like Jonah, go to pagan countries with God's word, like Nineveh, right? They cross these borders. They're not, they're not confined just to the kingdom or just to the temple or the tabernacle. The face of the cherubim, the ox, the lion, the eagle. Uh, this, is, this is helpful. When you think about the priesthood and the law, the sacrifice is at the very center, right? And the, the main sacrifice is the bull, right? It is, that is the ultimate sacrifice. It's the ox, essentially. It's a priestly figure. Uh, symbolically, the animal represents the priesthood. And then when you think about a lion where now the walls have moved to a kingdom and a lion is one that creates a kingdom for himself, right? He has his territory and so on and he fights. David is a man of war. We'll get into that later. But, and then the eagle is one that soars over all the borders, right? The eagle has no home. It has no place where it's, it's saying, I am only allowed to be here or this is my own territory. Eagles go where they want. They soar beyond borders. There's a body part associated with these, the ear, the hand, and the foot. When um, Aaron and his sons were anointed to the priesthood, God told Moses to take some blood from the sacrifice and rub it on the ear, on the thumb, and on the toe. Right? So that's it's one of those things. And it's a holistic um, representation. Your whole self is to be anointed for the priesthood, every part of you to the point where the priests weren't even allowed to work, nor did they get an inheritance in the land, because their whole self was dedicated to the temple or to the tabernacle, right? So if we were to look at this, the symbolism that comes up in in Leviticus of the, the ear and thumb and the foot, you could even apply that here, where the ear is what you hear with, right? And what is the law? It is God's teaching, right? It is do this, don't do this. 
right, wrong. Moses and God, or God through Moses, sometimes they go back and forth, are speaking constantly throughout Exodus, throughout Leviticus, throughout Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is just a huge sermon, multiple sermons. The second part of Exodus is all God speaking, giving instructions, and Israel is to hear. And their biggest crime is that they don't listen to God, right? But that changes when we get to David. All of a sudden, David is not called to just listen. He should have already listened. He, know, he should know the law. But now as a king and no longer as a priest, David begins to use his hands. Music is really introduced in the kingly era, uh, the kingly section, right? The, the Psalms and Song of Solomon and all of this, instrumentation, music, the use of hands, fighting, all of these things come out more with the kingly era. And then the prophet is the foot, which the prophet is to travel. They are to go throughout borders. They go where God calls them to go. They travel. Okay, I also, I kind of explained the next one a little bit. Work, they are to obey. The priests are, right? They are to obey God. When we come to the kings, they are to have wisdom. They are to know what is right and wrong and act. And then when we come to the prophets, they are to advise or to instruct, okay? There's also a stage of life that this corresponds to. When we talk about our kids, um, it is really good that when we have kids, particularly infant through high school, and they, when they get to high school, they start to move to this next stage. But with our kids, we want them to learn to obey. Listen to me, right? Just do what I say, right, wrong. Learn these things. I don't need you to try to figure out ambiguities. I just want you to learn to obey. I want you to learn what is right and what is wrong. And then when you get older, you begin to use wisdom. Huh, well, maybe, maybe there's not a right and wrong to this. Uh, do I take this job or do I take this job? There's no one who can tell you, yes, do this. And nor should you be looking for that. You have to use wisdom. You have to use what you have learned and apply it. And then by the time you get to uh, now, that's the middle age era. And then by the time you become an elder, you become a prophet where you should know the law. You have lived the life. And now you look back on those priests and those kings and you advise on what is the best path to walk. The gospels also line up with this same paradigm. Matthew is a very priestly gospel. Jesus has five big sermons in Matthew, which correspond to the five books of the Old Testament. Um, Matthew is one that is very much focused around the Jews, around the temple, around the law, around Moses. It's a priestly book. Jesus talks a lot. Ma Mark is a very kingly book. Jesus is active. He is going to war with demons. He's healing people. He uses his hands a lot, right? Luke is a prophetic book because he travels. If you read the book of Luke, Jesus must be tired because he's traveling everywhere, right? This is what Luke is all about. It's more of a prophetic sort of book. And then it moves from tribe to kingdom to empire as well. Okay, are there, uh, are there questions on that? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of questions on that. Any initial questions? And I'm happy to discuss this at length in other uh, venues as well, other avenues. Questions? Does this make sense? Let me ask you that. Does it, do you see the logic to it? Do you see the beauty of it? <laughs> it's a very helpful way to think 
I mean, I would put forward it's a helpful way to think about all of life, right? It really is. I use this all the time in counseling. When I counsel folks, oftentimes it's, it's kings that are not being good kings. <laughs> and it's to say, hey, you, you've got to, you, you have to step into this. You're an adult now. No one's going to tell you what to do. You have to use wisdom. And where does that wisdom come from? From everything you have learned or everything you are learning, right? We must be good kings. You don't want to be bad kings. Parenting, it's super helpful. You don't want to give your kids too many choices when they're young, expecting them to be able to use wisdom and to discern, but you want to, them to learn what is right and wrong. Kids are so happy when they know the boundaries. They know exactly what to do, and they know, I did something wrong. I, I messed up. I'm so sorry because I broke the rule. What, you know? But if they're living in this ambiguous place all the time, of saying, I'm not really sure what the rule is. Before, I was able to this time, I wasn't able to this time, and they have to discern and use wisdom. They don't have that yet. That's very difficult for kids. It's very helpful when everything is laid out nice and clear, like God did with Israel through the law, right? It's very helpful. All right. Excellent. It does. Yeah, yeah. So, so those are two. I mean, you're, you're right. Those are two different kind of paradigms. But the temple, the big issue in the prophets is that it's been destroyed. It's rebuilt, Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was rebuilt almost like a tree fort. I mean, the thing was not good, right? When it comes to the new covenant, which is the man, which is Christ, who is the ultimate priest, king, and prophet, right, which we'll get into at, at another time. That's, that temple of Herod's temple is a big, glorious temple, yet it's a false temple. So Jesus himself takes on the role of the temple. He is the temple, as John goes at length to say. But the temple is not the center of the discussion in the prophetic books. Yeah, good thought. It's really where they go and who they're in captivity to and what wars are fighting and so on. Good thought. All right. Ooh. Isn't that nice? Okay. All right, if there are no questions on that, we can come back to that at any time. But I want to introduce you to the quadriga, the quadriga. This is an answer in part to Sammy's question on how do we know that we're doing this the right way. When we read the Bible and we see connections, how do we know that we're able to work through this in a responsible, God-glorifying way? And the quadriga is a very helpful tool uh, that will guide us through reading the Bible, okay? The quadriga is a uh, actually, it's a four-horse chariot where the four horses run side by side, by side by side, right? Um, that's, that's the technical word or meaning for a quadriga. But this is a helpful um, tool for interpreting the Bible. So we're going to focus on David and Goliath now. I, we're going to come back to the transfiguration. But I think the story of David and Goliath is one that most of us um, are fairly familiar with, okay? So... I want to have a, a story that we're familiar with, 
that we can uh, kind of work through how the quadriga works. So when we read the Bible, we should do so making connections. When reading the story of David and Goliath, we should not just be seeking to understand the point that God gave victory to David and the Israelites. We are not to just believe that David had faith in God and the boldness to act out that faith by fighting Goliath. We are not to just believe that Goliath would have won the battle if God did not fight on David's behalf. Now, each of these facets of the story are true, and we must believe them, but there's more going on to the story than just that. Um, And knowing these historical facts does not mean that we truly understand the story of David and Goliath. To understand the story of David and Goliath or any other story in the Bible, we must learn how to read the Bible through new eyes. So the quadriga, you have another chart in your notes. I want to um, do this. This is helpful. There are four movements when we read the Bible, right? So when we pick up the Bible, there are four four steps that we want to take, four disciplines, four studies as as we want to dive in and and do the work. The first movement is we want to do the historical work. We're going to use historical. um, There's other words throughout church history. It's been called the, the literal reading of the text, the contextual or whatever it might be. We're going to use historical. So I'm putting H there. When we read the Bible, we first must actually understand and seek to wrestle with what the text is saying in a historical way. The author's intended meaning, we want to study the the context, and so on. Um, The historical piece is to say, when, when David went to fight Goliath, and it says that Goliath was from Gath, he's from Gath, right, Goliath, Gath, that Gath is a real place. And we want to ask the question, well, where was Gath? And it says that David actually came to bring supplies or food to his brothers and to the armies. That's why he came to battle. He actually came to bring food and supplies, right? There is no explaining this stuff away. Every detail of the text matters. So we have to wrestle with it and say, okay, how do we interpret this? How do we understand this? We want to understand the history of the text. So when we're studying this, we want to ask questions like, who, what, where, when, how, and so on. This, uh, on this um, chart I gave you, there's a biblical virtue that I put there. It's the authority of Scripture, right? When we read the Bible, we place ourselves underneath the weight and the authority of Scripture, and what it says, we believe. We go where the Bible takes us, not where our theological assumptions take us, not where our Uh, denominations take us, not where these other things take us, right? We are to be men and women under the weight and the authority of the Bible, okay? Every word matters. We do not, even spelling matters, right? With Nabal and Laban, like that matters. Everything, it's it's all there. That's the historical piece. Next week, we're going to spend most of the time working through how to do this, how to do a contextual study, how to do word studies, how to understand um, the historical context, understand how this uh, book or this story fits within a book and this book fits within um, a section and so on. Uh, we can do, there's, there's all sorts of Bible study methods that are very helpful. How to use Bible dictionaries, how to do uh, yeah, word searches or um, syntax, how words relate to each other. 
and so on. This is all the work that we have to do before we do anything else. We have to understand the text, right? And then we go on to the typological piece. Okay, the typological. That's, that is a, a word, like most words, um, that has very positive connotations and very negative connotations, right? But typology or figural readings, um, the church, the medieval church and the church fathers used to call allegorical readings. Paul uses allegory in Galatians. Right? He's like, let me talk to you in an allegory. He talks about the two mountains, right? So he's, he's reading it. This is the same idea, um, but it, it's, it's done from here. This helps us understand what's, what's here. So the typological reading is where we ask the question, where is Jesus? Where's Jesus in the text? And not only where is Jesus, but where is Jesus and his bride? The, the totus Christus, as Augustine says, the whole Christ. Um, when we, when we begin to read this way, we want to ask, what am I supposed to believe about this text? I see the historical facts, but what is this telling me about Christ? What is this revealing to me? And then we move to the moral. When we get to the moral, that's when we say, okay, how does this apply to me? How is this to transform me? How, how after knowing what to think or what to believe about a text, we are to act out this text, act out the passages of Scripture, act out the Word of God, live it, breathe it, think it, speak it, and so on. Once we do that, then we come to the last movement, which is the eschatological movement. And this we ask, where is this text going? Like, where, where is it pointing us? All Scripture is like a stream, right? It's moving, it's active, and when we jump into that stream, we don't want to pretend that this is just dead, stagnant water. Where is this taking us? So if it's David and Goliath, we say, where is this taking us? And that will, as we'll see in a few moments, certainly takes us to Christ. And then where else does it take us? Where does it take us in 2021? What is the hope found in this passage? Okay? So you have the history, which is, Understanding what the text says, the, 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 what the Bible says. Um, then you have the typological, which is, what am I to believe, right? Where we find Christ. This is our faith. Then we come to the moral. How am I to treat others? How am I to um, apply this to my own life? How am I to love my neighbor and love God? So this is love. And then that's eschatological. Where is this taking me? What has God promised? Where is my hope? So you have hope. So within this reading, or within this tool, you have the word of God as our foundation, and then what flows out of that is the three pillars of the Christian faith, which is faith, hope, and love, right? It's a very biblical way to read the Bible, and as we unpack this more, we'll find out that this is actually how the Bible reads itself in so many ways. All right? Yes? Should be looking for it, absolutely. Um, 
the way that we, we tend to read our Bibles, whether it be by pericope, which is like the little headings in front of the, the text, or a verse, when we look at the context as a whole, absolutely, these things will, will be found. But sometimes the context as a whole will be, you know, multiple chapters. Um, so the second part of Exodus is uh, the giving of the law and the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. So there are absolutely ways that we zoom in and say, okay, when he talks about the fact that the tabernacle is to be lifted up off of the ground and it's done with certain materials and all that, like what is that telling us? Is there some sort of symbolic piece to that? And the answer would be yes, right? That you go into the presence of God on mountains. So the tabernacle is actually supposed to be like a little mountain that you actually have to ascend into the presence of God. Um, when we're in the presence of God, we are to come in cleansed. We are to come in holy and, and, and so on. Um, and then as we find out, this is how we are to love one another, right? With, with good, uh, we love one another with, um, by showing favor, by showing good deeds, by being um, all, all, the, all the virtues, right? I'm trying to think of the verse, but it's, it's escaping me right now. Uh, and then there's a hope to that as well right? Like, who, who is the ultimate ascended one? It is Christ. He is the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the temple that is ascended. So even the fact that it's up off the ground, there, there's things that are there that can remind us of what, what God is doing, okay? So you can do that, but overall, um, this, this can be applied, um, I think, anywhere in the Bible. So, good question. Other questions on this? Dara? Mm. Yes. Thank you for the reminder. Y'all know what this basket is for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so if we go, if we cut this short or change the order, some really bad things can happen. If we go from Bible to faith, and that's where we end, uh, we are just a bunch of scholastics that are, are not honoring God, right? That it is, it is dead academia. If we go from history, from the Bible, we're just assuming we start at the Bible, because if we start anywhere else, we're in all sorts of trouble. If we start from the Bible and go to moral, then we become legalists, and we view morality as being the ultimate end, as in God just wants us to behave the right way. Every verse, every passage is God telling me what to do and what not to do. And if we go from the Bible to eschatology, then we become prosper prosperity gospel people, right? The Bible says, well, uh, yeah, the, the Bible gives all of these promises. These promises will ultimately be fulfilled here. I don't need to love people. I don't need to care. We just kind of name it and claim it sort of thing, right? If we go, there's all sorts of variations, but if we go from here to here to here, we miss out on the true meaning of the text. Um, if, we, if we go from here to here to here, obviously we, we miss out on how it applies to us. This is a holistic reading of the Bible. So yeah, certainly we do not want to make the error of not starting here and moving here because we have to know what text 
says to us about Christ. Because what it says about Christ is what it says about you because you are in Christ. You see the connection there. I'm not saying it's a one-for-one one as if he's talking about you. But we are in Christ, and that's, that's how we begin to understand the Scriptures. And then it's only in Christ that we can know how to love people. Right? We cannot do it apart from Christ. So we have to see Christ in the Scriptures. And that shows us how to love. And then we see, my goodness, the Lord is at work, and he is not done. He is continuing. This stream is continuing to move um, for our tomorrow into eternity, right? It's moving us forward. So good, good question. Other questions? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, abs- that, that's a great question. Now, I'll answer it in part, but really next week we'll um, be showing you how to, what tools to use to find these things. Um, so certainly it's, it's, it's learning how to do the historical study. Right, because so often when we just open up and say, okay, I'm going to read and try to understand it, it's so foreign to us, you know. It's written at least 2,000 years ago in a very different culture, in a very different way of thinking, and we can't do a one-for-one translation into our world, lest, and this is part of it too, we go from here to here, and we miss on what it's actually doing, right? Um, so, when, yeah, when we see olives or uh, wine presses and so on, uh, we, we want to know how to study those, and we want to know how to, to do a contextual work. And there are so many resources that are out there that tell us about the historical context to the Bible. Uh, there are thousands of pages written on what was going on with David and Goliath in, in David's life. Like, what, what was the political context? What was the social context? What was going on with food? What was going on with warfare? Clothing. I mean, it is all. There's so much that we can we can study. Uh, so next week, I'll I'll introduce some of those tools to use. And then the, the the most practical way is if we read, wanting to make connections. Going back to the analogy of faith, the Bible interprets itself. And it's the best commentary on itself. So when we read through and we see a wine press with or a vineyard with Noah, then we see a vineyard with Ahab, and Ahab actually killed the vineyard owner so he could take possession of it. And then we see in the prophets, vineyards being pulled up and then replanted, and then grapes being crushed within the vineyards. And then we come to the gospels and we see Jesus talking about old wineskins and the parables of the kingdom is like a vineyard. Uh, And then we go to Revelation and we see the wine press of God's fury and wrath, and what does that mean? So if we, if we start reading and we try to say, where else do I see this? It begins to paint a picture for us that helps us to understand some of these concepts a little bit better. I think that, that would be the biggest takeaway, even from this entire class. You know, forget about all the, the connections that, that I make up here. If, if we can read our Bibles looking for these connections, uh, it will it will change your, your life. It, you will fall in love with God. You'll be like those disciples in, 
on the road to Emmaus where your heart begins to burn inside of you because you're saying, oh my goodness, look at this. It's, it's there. There's, the Holy Spirit is doing something here. It's really incredible. Yeah, great question. Others? Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's, I'm going to give you the short version. But really, a lot of it comes with, with enlightenment and, and German scholasticism and the denial of the supernatural and trying to view everything as a historic only sort of text. Um, that has cr- hasn't crept into church. It's come flooding into the church. <laughs> So when we read our Bibles, we read it as a, just a historical document that we need to try to understand, and this is not interested in that reading at all. Now this, we will say it was most popular in the medieval, but it was practiced by the church fathers all, I mean, it's, it's in the Bible, as, as we will discover. This is how the Bible reads itself. It's how the, the church fathers read the Bible. This is how certainly medieval theologians read the Bible. This is how the Reformers read the Bible. This is how many people still read the Bible. Uh, yeah, but there has been this big blip in the, in the history of reading the Bible that is called the Enlightenment that I think has done some really, really, uh, it's, it's offered a lot of benefits. Archaeology and, and a lot of things that has come out of it, um, but it's, it's wreaked havoc on reading the Bible the way we are supposed to read it. Good. All right, I'm going to go through. I want to do an example of this. Um, and I, I, I put most of the things in your notes so you can take it home and, and do it. So I'll go through it fairly quick. Um, but with the story of David and Goliath and just see how this reading um, is helpful for us. All right, so in the historical piece, there's, there's all those questions you want to ask. Who is David? Who is Goliath? Where is Gath? Why are they fighting? Why is he bringing food? Who is Jesse, his father? Who is Saul, the king? Right, all of these things. We want to just understand the story, okay? And then as we begin to do that, we can outline the text, and I put a very basic outline in there, Um, and there's many details that I don't mention, but these are the sort of observations, things you could write down as you're reading, just to help you know what's going on in the text, and you can ask questions of it, right? So verses 1 through 11, for the most part, is talking about Goliath, okay? You have two armies standing on two mountains, facing each other, with a valley in between them. This is, this is the, the scene <laughs> that they are in. They're ready to go to war. Two mountains, two hills, a valley in between, and they, they are wanting to war. This is not normal warfare as we would expect it. This is solo warfare, right? This is not Israel and the Philistines all running and bashing into each other and fighting like you see in the movies. This is the Philistines saying, we have a champion. You bring forth your champion, and whichever champion wins... Uh, plunders the other one, and you all become our slaves. That's basically what's going on. Uh, so Goliath offers a deal that this is the champion warfare in verse 9, uh, which is there in your notes. You can read that. Goliath mocks Saul and the armies of God. That's a very key thing in this entire narrative. David really takes issue with that. He does not like it that this uncircumcised Philistine is mocking his God. So when we think about a posture we should have toward mocking God, we should be, we should be saying, let's be with David on this one, right? Let, let's think the way he thinks on this one. And then Saul and all of Israel are greatly afraid. 
that's usually who we actually identify with, right? We're usually not David in the story at all. We're more uh, Israel, afraid. In verse 12 through 23, David is introduced. He's the son of Jesse, who was born in Bethlehem. Uh, He had seven brothers. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. David was the youngest son. Uh, David was a shepherd. It's it's interesting how uh, the youngest children often have primacy in, in the Bible. Goliath was taunting, had been doing so for 40 days. That's a huge number in the Bible, right? 40 days, that's, that's used all over the place. So that, that, I'm moving to the typological reading, but that, those are things that we want to pause and, and then do work and say, where else is 40 days mentioned? And why is this important, okay? So Jesse sent David uh, to the battle with supplies. David hears Goliath's words, and he's not happy about it, Okay? So David begins to consider fighting himself. All the men of Israel were afraid. There is a promise for a man who kills Goliath. Do you guys remember what the promise is? These are some of those details in the story. What? A bride and... uh, I think that was part of it. But money. (laughs) Yeah, I think the taxes piece is there too. Yeah, you're right. Which is maybe even better. (laughs) Um, So here's something to think about. It's like, okay, so if you defeat the giant, you get a bride and glory, right? You get a bride and you get wealth. You get get treasure. All that culminates with glory in the Bible in in certain ways. All right, David sees what's going on, which is that he's mocking mocking the Lord. Uh, Then David's older brothers are embarrassed by him, right? Young David, the youngest son, he comes up, starts running his mouth, thinking he can take him on, and they're too afraid. So they rebuke him, tell him to be quiet. Saul, the king, sends for David. Saul knows David, because if we do our context study at this time, uh, which would, we'd want to do before we uh, go too deep, we want to read the surrounding chapters. So we'd find out that chapter 15, the Spirit of God was taken from Saul. He's no longer anointed as king. Um, in chapter 17... David is anointed as king, so that has something to do, or excuse me, 16, David is anointed as king. But if we go back even further, David would go into the temple and play music for Saul, and Saul loved that, right? It it calmed him. When the spirits were raging inside of him, it calmed him. So Saul's aware of who David is, so this isn't just a random uh, conversation. So David says he will fight. Saul says, no, David proves himself by saying, listen, I've killed a lion and I've killed a bear. Who else has killed lions in the Bible? Uh, Samson. You remember what Samson, the, the story of Samson uh, at his birth, it says uh, that he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He will begin this. And who finishes it? David, the next lion killer, right? So you have this connection with the lion killers, with David and Samson. And there's many more, believe it or not, between those two. So David said Goliath will fall like one of these previous beasts. Um, Saul offers him armor. David says no. So David, not literally, but when it comes to war, he goes to war naked, right? He has no armor on. He goes revealed. He goes vulnerable. So David took his staff and sling, and he took five stones from the brook. We could spend time talking about that in this one verse, there's wood, stone, and water, and those three things are really, really interesting in the Bible. David is physically described in verse 42. Remember, he was young, handsome, and ruddy, reddish hair. Um, 
Goliath mocks David. David talks trash back to Goliath, which is fantastic. That's one of my favorite passages. And then they begin to fight. David takes a, sling, or takes a stone from his sling and hits him in the forehead, and what happens? He falls onto his face, which is one of the strange little quirky things in the Bible, right? When we find an oddity in the Bible, we need to pay attention to it. When do you get hit in the forehead with a stone that's traveling about 130 miles an hour that's about this big, right? And you get hit in the forehead, you fall back, right? You don't fall forward. So then we have people, we have explanations. I said, well, the stone hit him in the front, but God pushed him in the back. I said, oh, that's sweet, but that's not in the Bible, right? Um, But what is in the Bible is a word study. So if we do a word study on forehead, mesa is the word. If we do a a word study on that, what we find out is a mesa is like a a, a big wall, a blank wall, the full face of it. And when when it's applied to people, most often it's forehead, but it can be forearm and shins as well. That same word, right? It means shin, forearm, or forehead. So if we were to translate it appropriately, right, this is called the semantic range of a word, um, we could easily translate that it swung and it hit him in the shins and he fell forward. That makes more sense. It also makes more sense why David then ran up, took his, his sword, and cut off his head. That was the death blow. The stone just crippled him. The victory was basically won with the stone, but it was completely won when the head was cut off, a head wound. So then we say, oh, a head wound, that reminds me of the promise in Genesis. It'll crush the head of the serpent. And then we'll get in in a moment on why Goliath is indeed a serpent, a very large serpent. All right, so these are the sort of things. We, uh, you've got more there, but we, we could go on. We want to ask the questions, who, what, when, where, how does this happen? What are the word studies? What, what's interesting? What are some of the oddities here? What are some of the things that might not jive with just a normal reading, and that will help us understand the historical part of the Bible or of of the story. And then we want to move on to the typological. Now, next, in a couple weeks, I'm going to spend more time on telling you about what typological uh, theology or hermeneutics or study, what it is. I have some of it there in your notes. You can can look at. Um, But the definition is a literary or hermeneutical device in which a present event or institution in, and I believe in your notes, I did not change it, which I should have. Do your notes say in the Old Testament? Okay, so cross out Old Testament and then cross out New Testament and write instead, um, which a person, event, or institution in one passage of Scripture is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in another passage of Scripture. Right? Because as we saw with Moses and Joshua, Joshua is a type of Moses. Right? That's what typology is. It's making those connections. So it's not just old to new or new to old. Right? It is, it is all throughout. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to come back to this later. You, you all should read this because it's in your notes. The word typos or typus which is used multiple times in the scriptures where we get the word typology from. It's a shadow, it's a, it's a figure, it is an example, okay? And I have some verses there. Um, Romans 5 talks about Adam as a type of Christ. 
right? So we have this typological connection between Adam and Jesus. So then we would ask, well, what way in Jesus is Jesus a new Adam? Um, yeah, and then I give you a couple examples, even where that word is not found in the Old Testament with Numbers 21, which we might actually get to this Sunday, where, how that connects with John 3. And then Abraham and Isaac, and this, this is one of the big things. If you, if you were to Google or if you've read some, some um, studies on typology, there are some who would want to put certain rules around it that would say it's only a type if the New Testament affirms it as a type, Right? So there's this primacy of the New Testament over and against the old, which is not helpful. Um, that's not to say that they are different, but they're, to think of one as more important or primary um, just tends to lead us down the wrong path of biblical interpretation, right? So there are some that, says, that would say that it's only a type if it's affirmed as a type in the New Testament, like Paul does with Romans, uh, with Adam in Romans 5. That's a, a legitimate type. However, nowhere in the New Testament do we see Isaac as a type of Christ. And absolutely he is, right? Absolutely. Not only is Isaac, but Jehu is a type of Christ. And we could look at that. But Isaac is, is and there's many others, but Isaac, I mean, my goodness, he is, we'll get into it and we'll explain that in more detail. But man, I mean, he's a son who's about to be sacrificed, right? Uh, and, and then, and it's, it's wonderful. I wish we had more time. You guys all just want to stay another hour? <laughs> we can just keep going. Okay, we'll get into that later. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, you have a list on there um, with some of the observations of David on the one side, right? On the top in your columns, there should be uh, two blanks. One over David, you can put type, and then you could put anti-type, which is the corresponding type. So David is a type, and then the anti-type would be over the next one. So this, and there are many more, these were just some of the observations that I made in the text that I think really connect or show some of the typological significance of the story of David and Goliath. All right, so first and foremost, um, when we think about David, who is David a type of? Jesus, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a very evident one. Uh, Jesus is actually called David, <laughs> right? And son of David. He is said to sit on David's throne. I mean, it is all over the place in the New Testament. Jesus and David are connected, typologically speaking. So then we could go through with that permission, say, well, what else in the story about David tells us about Jesus? And not only that, but what, what elements in the story of David and Goliath tell us about other passages in the Bible? So let's, let's work through this. You have David, and the anti-type would be Jesus, David was a shepherd. Is Jesus a shepherd? Yeah, he's the good shepherd. John 10, all right? Absolutely, he's a shepherd. David was anointed king. Was, David, was Jesus anointed king? Of course. And that a, do you have A, B, and Y in your notes? Okay, so I, I wrote this a few years ago, and I must have had that for my own thinking. I cannot, I don't have a clue what it means. So... <laughs> I didn't realize that until we started printing over, you know, all the packets out. I said, well, so if you can figure it out, you get a reward. <laughs> okay. David's brothers doubted him, right? When he came to, to fight, they doubted him. They rebuked him. Did Jesus' brothers ever doubt him? Yeah, absolutely. So if David is Jesus, who is Goliath? 
Satan. All right, so can we really just say that, though? Because we, we have to do good work here. We can't just, to your question, Sammy, we can't just say here and say, oh, well, yeah, he's Satan, right? We have to find it in the text. The text has to grip us as we make these connections. So is there anything in the, in the story that would make us think that he is Satan? Ah, very good. He is a mocker. Satan is called a mocker. That's, that's good. I think that could lead us in that. That's moving us in that direction. That might not be enough in of itself. What's that? There's a wound to his head, which is not the stone, right? It's a sword. Ah, yeah, he's covered in scales. But that does, it doesn't say that, Sammy, in the text. But actually it does when it describes his armor. I think it's in verse 5. It says he's covered in this, like, chain mail, right? That word, ah, I forget what it is. Um, actually, I wrote it down. Koskesed is the Hebrew word. Koskesed, right? That word is used eight times in the Bible. Only once is it translated as male, speaking of chain male. The other seven times is scales. Now, oftentimes that's used as, as fish scales, right? Especially in Leviticus, it talks about what you are to do with fish with scales on them and so on. However, in Ezekiel, it does talk about Pharaoh as a dragon. But Ezekiel's talking about Pharaoh in symbolic language, which he does all throughout. And he speaks of Pharaoh as a, a king that devours, and he uses this demonic language of Pharaoh. And he calls him a dragon. He says he will be thrown into the water. Right? We see that in Revelation as well. Right? There's this water and dragon and all that. Um, and and in his scales will be caught all of these fish, right? Ezekiel 29, verses 3 and 4. If you go on and read that, you say, this is absolutely talking about not historical Pharaoh because, for one, the timeline doesn't work. So clearly Pharaoh is a symbolic figure of the enemy, of Satan. And Satan is a dragon. And then we go, okay, now let's go to the New Testament. It's like 12 times in the book of Revelation, Satan is called a dragon. So when we do typology... What we don't want to do is go from the text to the cross in a straight line. We can, and that's, there's, there's, there's good things to that. But if we're going to understand the text to the cross and how it all fits, oftentimes we want to paint a mosaic with it, right? We want to go everywhere the Bible takes us and eventually make all these connections and go to the cross, and that will help us understand uh, the, the beauty of the text and the significance of the text, and we get familiar with it as well. So we can't go Goliath to Satan without going to Ezekiel and then to Revelation. And then we say, yeah, that actually works. So those connections are all there. So Goliath is a Satan figure. He wore a coat of mail or scales like a dragon. And Satan is referred to as dragon 12 times in the book of Revelation. Goliath dies by a head wound. Satan dies by a head wound or the prophecy that his head would be crushed. And it was on the cross. David, David battled Goliath in one-on-one -on -one battle, championship warfare. Does Jesus do that? Yeah, of course, right? On the cross. He fights for all of us. He, he's victorious over Satan's sin and death 
on our behalf. So in this story, we're definitely not David. We are Israel hanging back, hoping that our champion wins. And in Christ, we are guaranteed that he wins. Ah, you get the prize, Mandy. (laughs) That's it. Already, but not yet. (laughs) Which I might have skipped over in that typology stuff, but we'll, we'll get to that. That is what it means. So when we read the Bible, there's, there's a big already but not yet sort of theme with it. The kingdom of God is probably the easiest example. The kingdom of God is already. One, it, it, I can't say 100% because then it would be, there would be no not yet. But um, the kingdom of God is here, but we're also waiting for it to be completely mature, to, be, to come completely, which would include re- the resurrection of the dead and the recreation of the world. So yeah, good. All right. So one-on-one warfare um, and victory, there is freedom and defeat. There is slavery. We see that in the gospel as well, right? If we are defeated, we are slaves. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that he set us free. And how did he set us free? By defeating the one who held us in our chains, Satan, sin, and death. Goliath taunted the people of God for 40 days. Jesus and the devil went to war in the desert one-on-one for 40 days. David defeats Goliath with a sword. In the desert, Jesus defeats the dragon with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. I did? Oh, yeah. David fights naked, no armor. How does Jesus go to the cross? Naked. Mark really highlights this for us. He wants us to understand there's shame involved in how he went to the cross. In fact, his garments were taken from him. Remember? Cast lots for it. All right, where else? Goliath died by his own weapon. This is an awesome theme in the Bible. Saul dies by his own weapon. Satan also dies by his own weapon. Satan was defeated on the cross where Jesus conquered him with his own weapon. And what is the weapon of Satan but death? Right? Jesus defeats Satan with his own weapon. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. And Goliath dies by his own weapon. The type of Christ, David, defeats the type of Satan with Satan's own weapon, which is the sword. All right. Once Goliath died, their champion, their strong man, the people of God plundered the Philistine tents. That's what happens at the end of the, of the narrative there. Do we see that anywhere in Jesus's? Ministry. Let the captives free. Is that what you mean? Leading the, yeah, leading the host of captives. Yeah. Casting out demons. That's, yeah, that's actually part of it in Mark where uh, he gets into the, the debate about um, what's the word used for Satan in that passage? Yeah, either way. Um, he talks about if you're going to plunder the, the, the man's house, you have to first bind the strong man, right? You have to tie him up before you can plunder his house. And he's talking about, um, oh gosh, he's talking about Satan and how Christ has come to bind the strong man, which is Satan, and the demonic forces so that we can plunder his house. The world being his house. And when he was, pl- when he was uh, tied up, defeated, the Great Commission is go and plunder the devil's house, because it's mine now, right? All authority is now mine. Go make disciples of all the nations. 
even those who were bound up in the house of the strong man, but I have taken him. I have bound the strong man on the cross. David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem. Did you, do you remember that in the story? Takes his head to Jerusalem for all to see, right, the victory. So do you know what the antitype might be to that? This is pretty cool. Think about when Jesus died. Where do we hear about a skull? Golgotha, the place of the skull. David comes back with Goliath's skull and he sets it up. And he sets it up not in the temple because you can't bring a dead head into the temple. Right? But they want everybody to see it. So they go to the hill nearby and they set it up. And that was from that time called, this is the place of the skull. This is where Goliath's skull was presented. Golgotha, the place of the skull. I'm going way over. I'm so sorry. All right, let's finish this and then we'll be about done. David receives a reward and a bride. What does Jesus receive? A bride in the church, right? And glory. Uh, this victory emboldens the people of God to fight. They were cowards before, and then they all of a sudden have all of this gusto to go and pl um, plunder the Philistines. The victory of Jesus emboldens his people to fight. So why the disciples were cowards throughout the Gospels, but once he dies and is resurrected, they, they all get martyred, right? They go to their death preaching the Gospel. They are emboldened as they share the gospel. And then we have uh, a rocketry and water with the five stones, the shepherd's staff, and the brook. Um, this, this I can unpack with more detail, that will, more connections that will make it clearer. But at the cross, we see a rock with a tomb. We see a tree with a cross, and the water flowed from Jesus' side. And trees, rocks, and water are incredibly powerful symbols all throughout the Bible and especially in Jesus' life, okay? So that, that right there, if you just read that and you didn't do any of the other connections, that's, that's not worth anything. That's way too much of a stretch. But um, it, it's there, and I, I'll be happy to, to walk you guys through that at some point. Okay, then the morals, how does this apply? You have it in your notes, right? Do you have the write-ups there? Okay. And then the eschatological, where is this taking us? I hate to do this, but we're 10 minutes over, and I don't want to, I don't want to hold the babysitters up. So I am going to pray, and then I'd be happy to, to talk about this more. I need to make these shorter so we can have more time to discuss. But let me pray.